The, um, the Greek mythological hero, Perseus, gets on the wrong side of the king Polydectus, who is the wrong kind of king to get on the wrong side of. Um, Polydectus holds a grudge and immediately sets to work trying to publicly disgrace Perseus. His plan is to hold a large banquet, he invites many guests, and he asks them all to bring him a gift of horses, or a gift of a, of a horse, and Perseus doesn't have a horse. And so he offers, uh, he promises, if Polydextus names any gift, he promises to bring it, to present it to him. And he actually falls, this falls right into the trap Polydectus had set, and he asks him to bring him nothing less than the head of the powerful, evil Gorgon, Medusa, whose gaze can turn man into stone. An impossible request, Perseus has no means of completing it himself, and so he turns to seek divine help. He goes to the Greek gods and they offer him special pieces of equipment to help him achieve his task. He gets a razor-sharp adamantine sword that can cut through anything, a helmet of darkness that can hide him in the shadows, some winged sandals that enable him to fly, a special mirror-polished shield and a special sack that can safely contain the head of Medusa. And using these, he's able to enter Medusa's cave, conceal himself in the shadow, get close, look, up, look at her in the reflection of the shield, cut through her steel-hard scales with the sword, store it in the sack, and then some of her offspring try to chase him, and he's able to escape with the winged sandals, and he is spared the humiliation, able to present the gift. Steve, you go on holiday for one week and I'm talking about b- Greek myths and gods. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I don't... I, I say this merely as an illustration. Um, nothing more. Because in it we see the, this concept of... which is present in a lot of myth stories and present in a lot of our modern blockbuster movies as well, of how special gifts and equipment are used to enable a man to overcome an evil being that he could, po- could not possibly survive against otherwise. Ephesians 6 is a call for us as Christians to take up the equipment we need so that we're not left defenceless against the evil one. Now, however, the, I mean, the enemy we're up against, the battle we're facing, the equipment we use... The strategies we use and the tactics we use, they look very different to those seen in other myths, very different to what we might see in blockbuster movies and other struggles of good and evil, but make no mistake, even though it looks different, as Christians we partake in a spiritual battle daily and so we need to make sure that we understand how to be prepared for it. Steve kindly gave us a recap of Ephesians. Um, it was a few weeks ago now. But chapter 1 to 3, they, they remind us as Christians right, of the, how amazing the gospel is, of our identity in Christ, the, the message of being saved by grace alone, the way God unites all things together under Christ, and the way He unifies us as His church by this common faith. It's a prompt for us as Christians never to grow bored of this message, but to only deepen our love and understanding and amazement of it. 
In chapters 4 and 5, Paul explains that if we take hold of the gospel and understand it, we, that will mean things for us practically as Christians. It'll affect the way we live, shape, the way, shape our lives, whether that be as individuals, as families, as church communities. And now in chapter 6, Paul tells us that living this life, shaped by the gospel, it doesn't just happen automatically, but it's a battle. Uh, And this passage incites us to go from understanding these things, understanding the truth of the gospel, to taking action and, and living it out daily. Verse 10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. It's a call to make use of the power God puts at our disposal. Um, Way back in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul tells the Ephesians that they have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, in chapter 6, we're told to take up those blessings and prepare for battle in the Christian life. So, in order to understand this battle, we need, or to participate in it, we need to understand how it works. What is the actual dynamic at play? It doesn't necessarily look like we're in a battle on the surface. What's the nature of this battle field? What's the type of enemy, we pl- enemy we're facing? What's the equipment we use? And what are the strategies we need to follow? Let's start looking at the nature of the battlefield and the enemy that we're up against. Look at me in verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Struggle against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I know it's been many weeks since we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, but let me read from you some very similar language Paul uses uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. He says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Do you see how there's actually a parallel of language there? Heavenly realms, power, authority, uh, rule. Christ has already been raised above all of them, seated above them all in the heavenly realms. You see, we're in a spiritual battle, but it's a battle whose outcome has already been decided. Christ is the victor. Yet here in chapter 6, we see that uh, the, the evil forces are still at work in the world opposing him. So, what's, what's their game plan? What, what is actually going on? Uh, verse 11, Paul urges us to resist the devil's schemes. Another word you could use there is deceptions or lies, but it's a word that comes with connotations of military strategy. The devil's strategy is to deceive God's people, to scheme in a way that harms their faith, that harms their trust in Jesus, the victor, it's to coerce them into sympathizing with the losing side of the war, with his side of the war and his way of thinking. We've been rescued from the devil's power, but 
As Christians, we need to recognize the strategic cleverness that he is using. And the other thing we need to recognize uh, is that if it weren't for Christ winning this battle uh, on our behalf, we would actually be quite powerless against his scheming, powerless against his deceptions. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Paul wants his readers to recognize the, the weak, mortal frailty of human nature compared to our adversary. These rulers, authorities, world rulers, spiritual beings in the heavenly places, in a place that we don't really see, can't really reach, so we can't totally even understand, we're in way over our heads by ourselves. And so we need, we, we need to understand that if we don't accept help from someone who is far more powerful than ourselves, um, we are powerless to resist the devil and his schemes. Uh, we read in verse 16 that the evil one will attack us, be attacking us with flaming arrows. We're under a constant barrage in the form of lies, deceptions, accusations that cause us to mistrust the strength of our Saviour Jesus and that are set to cause division among his people. We remember back in chapter 4, Paul talks about the devil's readiness to take any opportunity to harm the believer's faith. He uses the example of anger, but Satan is waiting for any opportunity. And I think we've all thought and felt those attacks in our minds and in our hearts. I wonder if any one of you have wrestled with thoughts, uh, something like this, whether perhaps you've failed or in a moment of weakness, thought, God can't possibly love you. Look at what you've done. Or look at what you haven't done. Look at your weakness. How can you be lovable? Or perhaps in another context, uh, have you thought, is, is Jesus really worth the cost? Even if it's just in this moment, is he worth the cost right now? Look at what you have to give up. Could God be better than this? Is God really good enough or powerful enough or trustworthy enough? Or do we just simply wrestle with self-righteousness, perhaps over a disagreement with another brother or sister, harboring resentment or bitterness instead of fostering graciousness and love. When wanting to be right, um, we, we can make an issue more central than it needs to be in a way that's unloving. Or perhaps on the receiving end, can being on the receiving end, yeah, can receiving ungracious treatment lead to wanting to give up entirely on coming to church, meeting with fellow believers, asking, is it really worth trying to love these people? These deceptions, these schemes, these lies of Satan jumping at every opportunity to plant doubt and division. Through God's Word, we know that they're lies, but they're clever, they're deceitful. And he takes advantage of our weak flesh and he preys on our sinful nature to blind us to the truth. And we've all experienced how powerful and coercive that can be. In fact, Paul makes it clear uh, earlier in Ephesians 
what our default position is. Before we accepted Jesus, uh, he says we are living under the influence of this master schema. Back in chapter 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. This is verses 1 to 3. You were dead, dead in the transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. There's no neutral ground. There's no safe zone in this battlefield. Don't underestimate the enemy. If we stand on our own, he will rule over us. He will overcome us. We are in a spiritual battlefield, whether we recognize it or not, between heavenly beings, and if we rely on our own strength, we're left helpless. So that's our enemy. That's the battle at hand. But we're not without hope. We're not at all without hope. On our own, we're powerless, but we're not left alone, are we? We know the outcome is decided. We know Christ has conquered death. He's conquered every evil power. We know his victory is at hand. See, the powers of this dark world, the forces of evil, they've already lost the decisive battle, and through him we now too can be raised to the heavenly places. We can be given strength through him, and we can take on the armour and equipment that enables us to face the evil powers at work in the world. I don't know if you've, any of you have seen much um, on like space travel, whether it's in documentaries, or even there's a lot of like movies about it, Interstellar and The Martian and sort of becoming a popular type of movie. Um, but the thing I, I notice whenever watching anything about space travel is how reliant people in space are on their equipment. Right? Like space is not an environment that is hospitable to human life. And without the equipment, they would die right away. Um, but through careful maintenance and looking after their equipment the things that you need that provide the, the necessary a- atmosphere and, and everything your body needs to survive, it's possible. I think that's kind of similar to our situation. This is a spiritual battlefield taking place in a, in a heavenly realm and we don't naturally have the means to survive, but through Christ, God grants us every spiritual blessing we need to stand and survive against the evil one. So the call for the rest of this passage is to take hold of these spiritual blessings and the power offered through Christ and to use them. Take up the full armour of God, use every means necessary to stand firm against Satan's attacks. So let's have a quick closer look at this equipment. Um, The first four pieces of equipment in in the passage in verse 13 to 16, they all come associated with this instruction to stand. We use them to stand firm. We're told that we stand by girding our waist with truth, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, fitting our feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace and taking up the shield of faith, all to stand firm. And throughout Ephesians, Paul refers to truth as the proclamation of the gospel, the teaching about Jesus and the good news centred on Jesus and his death on the cross. 
In chapter 4, verse 15, we're called to speak the truth in love to one another, to strengthen and grow each other in maturity. Gird your waist with truth. The breastplate of righteousness. Um, in chapter 4, righteousness is a sort of associated with putting on the new self. Righteousness and godliness become available also through the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. The readiness of the gospel of peace. Chapters 1 and 2, that's, they're all about how the gospel brings us peace with God and peace among His people as it unites us together. And the shield of faith in verse 16... It's a bit set apart from the others. Paul names a specific purpose to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Back in chapter 2, we we see that faith is the means by which God's people are saved. And it's also the means by which we have access to God. The means by which Christ dwells in our hearts. So faith plays a vital role in defending us against the evil one in that it grants us access to Christ in the first place. To stand. Then we're called to receive the other two pieces of equipment, the final two, receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. So these are gifts that God has already given freely, salvation, His Word. But here we're called to be proactive in receiving them, accepting them, taking them up and using them. So that's the equipment that's talked about. But do you see that there's like a a common thread through them? If I read them out back to back, truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the Word of God. These are all extremely, like, closely related. Almost, like, synonymous in some ways. I won't say they are synonymous, but they're so close. You know, the gospel of of peace, I mean, the gospel is also... The gospel of truth, it's, it is truth. It's the source of salvation, it's received through faith, it comes to us through God's Word, and it's how we attain righteousness, it's how we put on the new self. <laughs> I think putting on the armour of God, it boils down to living for the gospel. It means living according to the message of Jesus, letting our lives be shaped by that news of His victory and standing firm in the truth, trusting Him. What does that kind of life look like? I I think, for me, if you're anything like me, the issue with this kind of terminology, I grew up loving this passage, this battle terminology, taking on the armour of God. But the problem is, like, this idea of standing firm... um, it gave me the wrong impression to, to I think, what it's really saying. I, li- I would love to think of it as being heroically, gloriously, courageously fighting on the front line, having some profound epic impact on this, the outcome of this battle. Um, I think, has everyone seen Avengers Endgame? Surely. The, I kind of think had this, 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 this scene in this movie where the bad guy Thanos has defeated all the superheroes right at the end, and he calls in his huge army from out of space. Superhero movie, if you don't know. The bad guy beats all the superheroes, calls in this huge army, and there's one, the only hero, like, conscious, left conscious, is Captain America, and he, just, he stands up, and he sees this army coming, and he braces himself. His shield's been broken, but he straps on what he can, 
and he prepares against impossible odds to stand up for good against evil, to make this sort of epic, final, courageous battle. And I've, it's just, it seems really cool and heroic. It's like, you know, going down in this final last stand. Sometimes I think, if you're anything like me, that's one way you'd love to think of yourself in this spiritual battle. This courageous hero who has to face down hordes of evil forces and stand strong against the devil. And if we think that way, you can think that our Christian lives need to be dramatic, heroic. We need to look strong and courageous. But that is not actually the picture Paul's painting here. He's already told us, uh, it, it, he's not, sorry, he's not saying that we're making an epic last stand in an offensive blaze of glory. He's already told us that Jesus is the one on the front line. Jesus is the one single-handedly winning the battle we never could. And so we are asked to hold our position. Stand fast. As in, resist the devil's scheming, resist his deception, and don't abandon your post. Don't be fooled into deserting and sympathising with the losing side. So I think on a practical level, the call here isn't to live impressive lives. It isn't to appear strong. It isn't to appear courageous. It's living lives that are shaped by God's truth daily. It's remaining consistent and steadfast in the way we love one another. uh, The way we love our friends, our family, our community. It's the day-to-day grind of showing sacrificial love, the way Christ showed it to us. Not grieving the Spirit, but being renewed by it, speaking the truth to one another. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power, the news of His victory. Take up the armour of God and stand firm, not by your own strength, but trusting in the Lord and the gospel of salvation. And finally, our tactics. I've kind of touched a little bit on tactics already in talking about the armour, but um, how, do we, how do we actually, what, what are we instructed to do in this battle? Firstly, yes, laying down our life, living lives that are shaped by the truth and helping each other to stand firm, trusting Christ's power. But the other thing we're called to do is pray. Look at how Paul finishes the passage, 18 to 20. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Um, can anyone guess what the most common lie told in church might be? I don't actually have stats on this, by the way. It's just, but I, I reckon, I reckon it would have to be, or at least very close to be, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. How often might we say that as Christians and not follow through? Why do you think that is? 
Is it that we don't care enough about the people we say it to? Maybe sometimes, but I don't think it's always the case because I think there are many times where we're actually far more likely to follow through with offering practical help and follow through with it, Um, whether it be helping with meal preps or transport or babysitting or any any, all sorts of things, uh, then we are to actually follow through with praying after we've offered to. I think in many cases it might be that we just don't think that prayer is actually doing enough to be considered helpful. So we're tempted to offer to pray but not actually value it enough to follow through. I wonder if that's relatable to anyone. Paul tells us to pray. Remember that prayer is relational. God invites us to pray. And as our Father, sometimes He lovingly responds. Sometimes He lovingly doesn't, denies our requests, all according to His wisdom. But we, we, we shouldn't fall into the trap of being discouraged if our prayers aren't answered the way we want. Don't be fooled into thinking it's pointless or that we don't need to. This is a spiritual battle where we are relying on God's strength, not our own. So, of course, we need to bring our request before Him. Of course. Look at Paul, the great apostle himself. He's written more than half of the New Testament. And he himself knows how much he relies on the prayers of God's people to help him make known the mystery of the gospel. He needs prayers in his work and to lean on God's might, and so do we. Paul gives us five quick key characteristics that should shape the way we pray. In verse 18, he says they need to be constant. We should pray on all occasions, that we are always praying for the Lord's people. He says they should be given in the Spirit, giving prayers that the Spirit empowers us to utter. He says that we need to be alert and attentive, constantly looking for things to be praying for, watching looking for every opportunity to pray for others. We're meant to be zealous and devoted to prayer, giving ourselves over to it with the same zeal or enthusiasm we would to our hobbies or our work. We have to be devoted to prayer and finally, to pray for all of God's people. Our urgent prayers shouldn't just be for our own personal battles, but remember that we are all in a battle together and we had to pray for one another. We're not fighting as individuals, we're fighting as a church. Verse 19 and 20, Paul asks for prayer personally. No one is above needing prayer. We all need to trust that God is ultimately the one at work building His kingdom, winning this battle. If praying is something that you actually have difficulty with regularly, uh, can I recommend not recommend, can I really strongly encourage you to take action? Uh, And the way I would suggest taking action is a practical one. I'd suggest getting a prayer journal. Let's get one. And that can be helpful for two reasons. One is it actually keeps yourself accountable. You do not have an excuse of forgetting what the prayer point was. It's written down and you will pray for it. But the second is, if, you, if, if we tr- struggle to trust that prayer is valuable and that God does anything, if you have a journal where you've written prayer down um, consistently, 
it can be very eye-opening. And I know many people have shared the experience of being able to look back through it and see how much God actually has answered, perhaps in ways unexpected. Anyway, if you haven't already, I strongly suggest that as a practical application. Write down your prayer points. But prayer is more than a sideline activity. It's front and center of our activities for living for Jesus and resisting the devil. Paul wants us to pray with breadth, frequency, zealousness, and pray empowered by the Spirit. Let's not kid ourselves. We all need to be praying. So, friends, we are caught up in a spiritual battle. And it's of far more significance than we often realize. But our Lord Jesus Christ has won the decisive victory. And now he's given us the means to survive the attacks of our enemy. So don't ignore his blessings. Take up the gifts he's offered. Arm yourself with the truth of the gospel. Live lives shaped by the news of the victory of Jesus. Speak the truth to strengthen one another. Trust in God's strength and come before him in prayer. And always remember that even when we face such a mighty and wicked foe, that we don't stand alone. We stand firmly in the Lord and his mighty power. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for the good news of his victory over sin, over death, and every other dark power at work in the world. Please help us to take up the gifts you have given and to stand firm in living lives changed and shaped by your truth. Amen.